David here? Just wondering if David's here. No, not yet. Okay. Let's go to the scriptures. We'll have David's presentation after um, our message today, toward the latter portion of our service. We're in a series that I've entitled Resurrection Kingdom, and about what are the implications of life in the here and now if you are a member of God's kingdom, if you are a member of God's kingdom, of how he is going to renew all the earth, a new heavens and a new earth. And we're in part 11. I'll have one final message. Last, next week will be 12 and 12 of 12 of this series. And today I have a message for you about, um, about poverty, how the Christian looks at the issue of poverty and about brokenness in this world. So let's look at our passages today. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, a text I hope that is becoming very familiar to you. And then we'll look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Put your finger on chapter 22. Verse 1, this is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's go to chapter 22. This is, a, this is the way the book ends. My God's, these are glorious things. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Let's pray for today's message. Your word, Lord, says that there will be a time. Be, you will wipe away all our tears, and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, or death. What an incredible thing. It seems, and we confess to you, Lord, we believe this, but there's a part of us that don't believe this. It is almost extraordinary to think a world like this, and we have lived in a world where tears and mourning and death is so, it is the norm. This is our life, Lord God. Such that, Constantly, our every day is seeking to escape it, to run away from it, and to have pride in not having any of it. 
But Lord, may we learn the difference. May we hear your word and be convicted by it, not just as thoughts in our head, but really a deep truth which goes where the quarter drops deep into our heart and the gospel shapes us from the inside out, Lord God, making us a people after your own possession. Bright, shining light into this dark world for what you have in store, the type of people that you are making, Lord. Make us citizens of your bride. Make us citizens of your city over and against the darkness of the Babylon of today. Make us your people, we pray in Jesus' name. As we often do, I'm going to, I'm going to have a, I this message in, in largely three parts today. Today I'm going to talk about what I call the norm of American Babylon, and particularly with respect to how we approach our wealth, how we approach wealth and the, the issue of poverty. And then number two, I'm going to talk about the way of the city of God. How is the way of the city of God so different than the way of American Babylon? You know, we live in this time, you know, that the Bible talks about a Babylonian whore. That is not out there. It's not like somewhere else. This is our culture. This is our city that we live in, right? And three, I'm going to talk about the gospel and how it shapes the way we look at poverty, okay? So first, let me talk about the norm of American Babylon. You know, um, I just finished reading a book about a month ago called Coming Apart. And in this book, Coming Apart, it was written by a, a famous scholar named Charles Murray, actually a very controversial scholar. And Charles Murray argues that the country is literally coming apart. I mean, literally. And what he means by that is... All the people in America who go to like the top 30 or 40 schools in America, who graduate from the top 30 or 40 universities in America, who tend to get you know, the best paying jobs and, they, and who tend to get the, go into the industries, into the money industry, into the media industry, into politics and law and medicine and all the industries that particularly shape and define our culture, Literally, those people are segregating themselves into certain major cities. Those people go to all the, the same universities, and then after they graduate from those universities, they get jobs in the same industries with each other, and then they all like to live roughly near each other. And so he says, we're coming apart. That the people who run our society live in certain parts of our society, apart from everybody else, and then we become disconnected, and then... One among many, one among many effects of this current trend is that our politics has become incredibly dysfunctional. That's just one. And so he, he's doing this sociological study about how this thing, and he gives you all these numbers and so forth, but basically it boils down to this, that people like to segregate into the place where they are comfortable with, and generally People who are climbing the social ladder, who want to get richer, they all like to be around the people that, they, that are like them, and they like to be comfortable with other rich, educated, and comfortable people. And so let me tell you, he actually says to you the places in the country that he calls the super zips. <laughs> That's what he calls them, the super zip codes. Right? And he, he names to you many of the super zip codes. And let me just give you a hint right now. Um, Palo Alto is one of them. 
right? If you live in Palo Alto, you live in one of the super zip codes. If you live in San Francisco, you certainly do. If you live, uh, if you live in Cupertino, you're in a near super zip code. <laughs> you're not quite in one of the super zip codes. So this area that we live in, Silicon Valley, and then right up through the peninsula, right up this, the, the San Francisco, um, you know, up through, up through San Francisco, we're one of these areas that Charles Murray says is segregating itself from the ways of the rest of the country. And let me tell you something. Um, my wife and I, we lived in greater Philadelphia for, for about seven years. And um, you, some of you, if you've been in this church for a while, you hear me talk about this. It is radically different. Life here is very significantly different. And when my friends from Philadelphia ask me, what's it like over there in San Jose in California? And I just go, man, how do you describe it? Um, I just start saying, well, um, let's just imagine going to a foreign country and the taxation patterns are different. The relational expectations are different. The way they spend their money is different. The way they do their houses is different. Even the traffic patterns are different. Almost everything here is different than it is in greater Philadelphia, except the fact that we speak English <laughs> and use the U.S. dollar. But other than that, it's not really the same. <laughs> okay? And so when I was reading that book, I, there was parts of that book I just went, you know, I, I, I almost started laughing out loud because I knew exactly what he was talking about because I've lived in it. I've lived seven years over there and then, and then I grew up over here. I understand that difference. Now, why am I starting off this way? He says that what we have going on is a profound educational and economic segregation. That's what's happening. The country is segregating into like a centrifuge. And you guys, you guys ever did that experiment when you were in, in chemistry, you know, a little centrifuge, and you put things in a thing, it's, and the thing spins around, and then certain chemicals go to one side, and other chemicals go to the other side. And he says our country is like a centrifuge. And all the people who, who, who want a certain education and a certain level of riches, they tend to go apart. And you don't have to live in one of the super zips to just see this. Now, why am I talking about this? Because we live in a part of the country that is very rich and very comfortable, and it is a place that is very desirable. That's why it's so expensive to live here. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a function of supply and demand. The reason why a dinky, ugly house in the middle of Cupertino, like mine, <laughs> is very expensive I mean, I have friends in Philadelphia, if they were to visit my house, and then they were to ask me, what is this house worth? I'm like, mm. I mean, like, we don't own this house. We rent, okay? But if I would say, in this neighborhood, this house is worth three-quarters of a million dollars, they would probably gasp. They would they'd probably literally fall out of their chair. Because their house, which is literally twice as big as my house, all the fixtures and everything that's nicer than my house, would cost literally one-third the price. What the, that's the difference. That's how many people want to live in this area of the country. And the people who want to live in this area of the country, they like a certain comfort level. And you guys, and we're all part of it. You, they, we. We like a certain comfort level. And we do live very much so, especially those of us who live on the western side of the county, because the eastern side of the county tends to be poorer than the western side of the county. The western side of the county toward Palo Alto is the richer side. <laughs> The, the East San Jose side, that's the poor side in general, right? Of course, there's pockets of riches on both sides and po poverty on both sides of the county. 
But in general, especially those of us, as you want to move toward the western side of the county, we are living in economic segregation. And because of that, you are very much shielded from poverty. Poverty is something that's in Africa. Poverty is something that happens when you drive to the wrong side of town. You're like, hey, I want to get some really good Vietnamese food. And so you drive to that side of town and you notice, hey, this side of town seems a little poorer. Right? That's when we experience and touched upon little pieces of poverty here in our county. But in what's going on here in America is this economic segregation. And it's not, sometimes it's not like conscious. You don't seriously just think, I wake up every morning, you know, I don't want to be around any poor people. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to block myself off from all poverty and from the sense that, um, you know, that I don't want to be around the people that don't know as much as I do in terms of education, don't have the skills that I do, don't live in a house as nice as I do, don't wear the same level of clothes that I wear, they shop in poor clothes, and etc. And you don't wake up in the morning and say that to yourself, but you know what we do? This is America. This is what we do. You just wake up. You don't actually have to say that to yourself because it's just the total norm of the way we live. It is the total norm of the way we live that we segregate ourselves from poverty in our country. And Charles Murray says this is breaking us apart. It's making us dysfunctional. Now look. What does it say here in this passage, in chapter 21? And you're like, oh man, this is going to be, one of the, this is going to be a hard message, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> right? It's going to be a hard message. It says in chapter 21 that when God is building his eternal city, it is a city with what? No poverty. Zero poverty. There's no tears. And there's no mourning. What do you think that that means? It's an absolutely glorious city. When there is no, there is nobody low. There is nobody looked down upon. There is nobody with lack. That is his city. And, you know, when you look at chapter 22, in chapter 22, he talks about this thing that he calls, that he calls, uh, that he calls the healing of the nations. That right in the middle of the city, there'll be a river, a river of life and a tree of life. And people eat of the fruit of the tree of life. And I, and I said to you a few weeks ago that part of the healing of the nations is the growth and the blessings that we pass on to the next generations. But one of the fundamental deep brokenness of the nations is poverty. It's, it's lack of knowledge. It's lack of morality, quite frankly. It's a lack of knowing how to be human beings together and build a society where we know how to not crush those who, are, who have less than we do, how not to set them aside, look down upon them. And in, throughout history, it has been the norm of the world that the poor get left behind and the richer nations crush those nations that are weaker than them, that are poorer than them. That is the norm of this world. And there is tremendous mourning crying from, this, from that going on. Now, let me say something about this this tremendous need for the healing of the nations and how it touches them on the issue of poverty. Let me ask you, many of us in this room, you are, many of you are Asian Americans and your parents cared about education. Your parents, many of you still even have 
parents who are still married. You know, just if you go outside of the Asian American culture, do you know that divorce is far more rampant? And that divorce is a huge driver of poverty? It is a huge driver of poverty. Illegitimacy of people who are born out of wedlock, that is a huge driver of poverty. And that if you're not born within the nation, let's say of the Korean nation or of the Chinese nation or you know, name the Asian American culture that knows how to think in a certain way about how human beings must relate to each other, how men must relate to women, how, how marriage has to have a certain sanctity to it, and how children should be raised and how they should be trained to grow up to contribute into society. Now, let me just ask you this little question. Many of us think that I worked really hard, I studied, I went off to college, and I got certain skills, and I went out there, hunted out, found myself a good job, I pay my bills, I'm a good citizen, and I deserve to live the way I live. Is that how you think? Is that how you think, how many of you think? And if that is how you think, and maybe I mean, if that's not exactly how you may say it, you know, you wouldn't actually go, oh, I deserve my riches. <laughs> you know, hanging out with your friends at Starbucks saying it that way. But if this is just kind of the, the natural portion of the way you think, and then as you go around through poor neighborhoods, you basically just go, man, these people are kind of lazy. They should just work a little harder. They should study a little more. They shouldn't sleep around so much when they're in high school. Is that how you think? And the reason I'm saying this is that's very common to the way a lot of people, especially within Asian American circles, the way we think. And you know what? It is partly true. <laughs> it is partly true. It is partly true that if a nation, it is partly true that to a certain extent that you somewhat deserve the, the, the gains that you have made. But let me say this to you. You got those gains because you were born into your family. <laughs> you got those gains because you were part of a certain nation. In fact, you were born into America, <laughs> the most prosperous and most powerful and the safest and the most economically well-ordered nation this, that's ever been on this planet. And that if you live in another country, you could work hard, but you know what will happen? The rich guy in the next village would come over and steal your crops. You, it's no point in trying to marry well because the person, it, when the, 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 the people in the next village come over and kill your people, they may carry off your wife. Right? And this is the norm of the world. But if you are live and born into a nation that has got a lot wiser and a lot stronger about how they think about doing things, you are tremendously graced. You have been, you've had tremendous blessing. And it's nothing that you earned. It's nothing that you earned. It was just the way you were born. It was just the parents that, that, that God gave you. It was just that your parents made certain key decisions when you were young. And thus, then you worked hard. And then you went gotten grades. And then you went off to college and did all these kinds of things. And thus, you have a little bit of merit to how your life turned out. But there's a huge underlying form of just... The, we can call us, put it this way, the luck of the draw or that God was seriously just good to you in whom he chose the way you were, where you were born. If you were born in the middle of Nigeria or in the middle of Uganda or if you were, middle, if you were born in Guatemala, two weeks ago I listened to a, a podcast story from This American Life 
about how there was a civil war in Guatemala about 15 years ago, and the, the rebel forces came into one village and literally just hacked the people up. They just killed everybody. They raped the women and just hacked them up, killed everybody. This is Guatemala. It's not very far from us, by the way. It's only like one or two time zones over, and it's not that long of a plane trip to get there. And so if you were born in that country, maybe you would have been one of those kids hacked up in that village. This is the world, guys. And so I'm, I'm, I'm throwing this picture. I'm challenging you into the norms of the way we live to, to, to rethink a little bit, to not take the comfort zones of your life and take them for granted or to think that you deserve them or that this is all that, that the way life is and that this is all that you want to bequeath to your children, that this is, the only, that, that this is all that I'm gonna, I've lived this way and I'm going to try to live better this way and I want my kids to live better this way, but that this isn't all that there is. Otherwise, if that is all that your life is going to be about, then you are a pure Babylonian. Live for the here and the now. (laughs) Live for the comforts of the here and the now. But this scripture says there's so much more than that. There's so much more than that. And let me get to that now. Point number two, the way of the kingdom. Okay? How does eternity affect you? How does eternity affect you? Do you think that this is your ultimate home? And that this is what you'll have forever? And that, that living in a place where not only people will be comfortable, but that people will be righteous. And that people will be humble. And that everybody will be so glad to be generous because there's no sense of lack. For the way of this world is this. The way of the Babylonian city is this, your life for mine. Whenever it comes between you and to me, I've got to kind of get mine. (laughs) I've got to get mine. And if necessary, you have to get less so that I can get a little more. Sorry about that. Life is short. It's got to be this way. Because the way of this world is scarcity. The way of this world is people die and there's only so much riches. And the way of this world is mourning and crying and disappointment and shame. And so, if we have to choose, we just kind of have to get a little bit ahead. And what I think about is this. You know, if you take a cage, (laughs) if you take a cage, and you put multiple rats in a cage, and then you put only one food source on the end, and you say you make one half of the cage comfortable, and you make the other half of the cage not so comfortable, you know which rats are going to be on this on the comfortable and, and on the, the side where the food, the ones that are more powerful. They may be more powerful in their might. But in Babylon, the, the, being how physically strong is not the only way to be a strong and powerful rat. It's how smart you are and what education received and what jobs that you get that will shoot you to be on the better side of the cage. That's the way of the world. And it becomes normal in our society to say, your life for mine because we don't have eternity in Babylon. The world is always going to have mourning and crying and death and scarcity. So you know what it is? There's just a big shakeout. The rats just just kind of make sure we're on this side of the cage because that's all the world is. It's a big cage 
where the food source is over there. And all those who are really good at getting to the food source and living on the comfortable side of the cage, we're going to get over there and we're going to make sure we stay over there and make sure if, if it's between me and the other guy, I'm sorry, it's got to be me. Okay. But if you live, if you are truly a citizen of this glorious city, if this is your eternity, this can never be taken away from you, that your identity rests on this. You look at this whole world and you're saying, you know what, I, I, that there's more to it than this. And this whole world is going to be renewed. It's not a cage. And I am not a rat. And I'm not just fighting for food sources or the comfortable side of the cage. But I'm a citizen of the city of God. I'm a member of the, the people that will be married to the Lord God. And we will have his grace and his riches upon us forever and ever. And you know what? I don't need to worry about any of that stuff. And you know what? That's true whether you are rich in this time or whether you are poor in this time. Whether you are rich or whether you're poor. And if you really believe that this is true, if you really believe that this is true, it'll, it'll just change the way you look at your money. It'll change the way you look at riches or poverty. If you are poor, you won't be so ashamed of being poor. And you won't be so like hard scrabble, got to get over to the other side of the cage. Because you, whatever, the whole world is going to be glorious. And it'll be my city. And it'll be my king. And it'll be my life forever. And if you are rich, you won't be so worried about being so secure. You won't be so worried that your kids just got to be as rich as you. You know, you won't be so worried that if my kid wants to grow up and live on the poor side of town for Jesus, go, do it, right? It is, I think, absolutely shameful and horrible that in the Korean church, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to slam the Korean church for now, all right? You go to the Korean church. People come into the church. They say that I'm a Christian. We have elders who are chosen in the Korean church. The elder's son gets excited about Jesus when he's in youth group. And then after he graduates from college, he goes, he tells his dad, I want to be a missionary and I want to go to, you know, name a poor country. And you know what happens? His dad flips out. <laughs> his dad goes, no, you can't be a pastor. You can't be a missionary. What do you mean? I came to America. I sacrificed. I worked crazy number of hours in my store so you can go to UC whatever or Harvard whatever and then you can get the big house on the nice side of the rat cage. <laughs> and they get really angry about this. And you know what happens when, 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 you, when that happens? Let me tell you, whenever you hear stories about this, you just found out that the elder you're, you're supposed to respect lives like a rat. He looks at the world like he's in a rat cage. That he's really a Babylonian and not a citizen of God's city that he is not absolutely enamored with the city of God. And he does not really believe in the gloriousness of the eternity to come. Instead, we're just in a big rat cage, and i got to make sure my son ends up on the good side of the cage. Right? It's a horrible thing to have that in the church. But sadly, it is in the church. And it's not just over there, it's in here. And that's why I'm giving this message. What is the way of the kingdom? If the way of the, of, of, a, of the city of man is your life for mine, the way of the kingdom is my life for yours. 
And when we get to heaven, everybody will operate this way. Nobody has to worry about their money. Nobody has to worry about their status. Nobody has to worry about their pride. I doubt there's any segregated neighborhoods, right? I doubt that, you know, you have to go, oh, that neighborhood is better than this neighborhood in the city of God. That will all be BS. People will look at you blankly if you ever said that. They're like, you sure you're in the right city? (laughs) Maybe you belonged in the other place, right? Because there'll just be pure and radical generosity in the kingdom of God because there's nothing for you to worry about in terms of scarcity. My life for yours. I'll pour out my life for yours. Can you imagine living in a city where everybody treats you? My life for yours. How can I bless you? And it's not BS. It's just true and pure right from the bottom of their heart. Can you imagine being in that city? You know, when I think about that, I actually wouldn't mind having a short life. (laughs) I wouldn't mind if the Lord took me home sooner rather than later because I want to be a part of that. But until then, the Lord said, you are mine. Live that way and be a signpost to my kingdom here. Now, let me say something about Christians and, and, and poverty, and then I'm going to move to the last point of my message about the gospel and poverty. Right? Now, many of you, you're like, man, this is a powerfully guilt-inducing sermon. I'm, you're making me feel really bad, Pastor. <laughs> right? Good. <laughs> okay? All right? Then, then it's working if you feel that way. But let me, let me alleviate a little of that feeling. So one of the reasons why why many of us feel guilty is because we look at the issue of poverty as individuals. How is I, as an individual, going to help out one other individual who is poor? And if we do it that way, we won't get very far. Right? You, you see the homeless guy, I mean, you know, you exit the highway and there's a guy standing there and he says, need food? You seen that guy? I've seen that guy. Right? And, you, and what do you do when you're standing there? You're like, don't look at me, man. I ain't going to give you any money. <laughs> right? Um, sometimes I look at them and I pray for them. But you feel guilty, don't you? I do. Huh? If you didn't, man, you, you're, you're cold, I think. There's something wrong with you. But, but what we need is more than just give that guy a dollar or give that guy a quarter or give this person a, a, a meal. Right? And I've shared this with you before in the past that the, those, those Christians who are thinking about Mercy, that's what they call it, mercy. The mercy is economics and more than economics. It's about the deep problems because there's cultural and marriage and all kinds of issues that cause poverty, not just I don't have enough education or can't get a job. That there is, if you just give a hungry guy a meal or the person who comes to the soup kitchen or if you give a dollar to the guy on the street corner, that's what they will call relief ministry. What does it do? It gives them relief for about three hours, okay? If you do that, you can feel good about yourself for about three hours. But you know you made about this much difference in the world, not much, okay? But then they also talk about two other ways of thinking about uh, mercy. They call it rehabilitation ministry, and then they call it development ministry. All three are ways to tackle poverty in this world. And rehabilitation ministry is this. Someone is uh, an alcoholic. And you, drive, you get into a relationship with them. 
and you walk with them and you, maybe they go through AA or they're in your ministry in your church or something and then they go from being addicted to being free of alcoholism and so now they went from the thing that is breaking and destroying their life and causing poverty to the, a place where they can at least begin. They can begin a new life. They call that rehabilitation ministry. I see that as going from the negative to the zero, ground zero. That's a tremendously important piece of ministry. And that's a very, that takes more energy. It's harder. But you know what? That takes a community. That takes a people. It takes investment and knowledge across multiple people. Not one person can do this. It takes a group. And you know really what it takes is a church. It takes a church. That's really what it takes. The third one is development ministry. There's, so we have relief. We have rehabilitation. What's development ministry? It's to take the people that are at ground zero and then take them even further. That's education. That's training. That's skills. That's mentoring. That's setting up a school in the, in the middle of a poor neighborhood. That's going to another country. And maybe they don't even know how to do marriage. So you're doing a piece of rehabilitation and then teach them how to go further. That's adoption. Adoption is partly rehabilitation and then development. You're raising your children to go more. And let me just just challenge you. In our church, many churches do relief ministry. They do their one day at the soup kitchen. I would love for our church to tackle some form of rehabilitation or development ministry. I often think, actually, that the Asian church would be good at development ministry. To the Asian church, we're the ones that know how to like raise our kid to, to learn how to study and get jobs and to have a certain focus. And, and we generally know how to keep our marriages. <laughs> Not always good marriages, but okay. Uh, we have a lot of uh, work to do there too. But development ministry. And let me just say a little something about bishop before I go to the last part of, our, of my message. What is bishop? What are we seeking to do in Bishop. There are many churches that do a short-term missions project. They go to a poor country where people don't know Jesus. And they do some piece of help, medical or whatever. And then they share the gospel. And then they come home and they pat themselves on the back. You know what they did? They did relief ministry. <laughs> they did relief ministry and they preached the gospel. That, that's not bad, but that's what they did. But they didn't really help their, that nation or that culture to go very far. But in our church... We're seeking to do something like development ministry. And, you know, since I'm this kind of the spearhead vision caster for Bishop, uh, for Bishop, one of the things I've set forth for the Bishop team is a 10-year plan. We have a 10-year plan. And, we, and as I looked at Bishop, we said, you know, we can't just show up here and paint their houses and, do, and, and bring some of our nurses and run a VBS and then go home and think that we did our good for Jesus what we have to do is we have to do something that really make a lasting impact. Because you know what? The, the Paiute Indians, they are a truly broken nation. There are few working marriages on that reservation. The kids, there are not, not enough businesses there, right? Because the people don't know how to be entrepreneurs there. Most kids, a lot of kids, if they finish high school, they, they, they don't know where to go to college. And even if they go to college, they, don't, they can't make it outside of Bishop and they come back. A lot of the kids are on drugs. Alcohol abuse is rampant. They just, it's like the whole nation has crashed in, a nation on two square miles of land. And they are an oppressed people. 
What has happened to them was unjust. And you can hear about their stories. But if we're going to do something for them, it can't just be just show up and leave. And so I set forth a kind of like 10-year process. How can we have a real working church here? They, don't, they have one pastor on their reservation. You know that? And he's an old man. He's a good pastor. I met him. I respect him. I honor him. But he's an old man. And what happens when he passes away? There'll be no pastor there. There will not be, they'll be, they will have gone from one working church. They have two churches on the reservation. I would say only one is really working. They will go from one working church to no, no working church. And who will teach them marriage? Who will teach them manhood? Who will teach them womanhood? Who will teach them education? Who will teach them how to start businesses? Who will teach them how to build a city? A city of righteousness. So, these are some of the things we're thinking about. As we look at Bishop, I would like you to just please pray about these things and consider these things. We're going to be investing in Bishop for a while. right? And as we look at the people in Bishop, how we may love them. Not just do something to them, but walk with them. Because we're not richer and better than them. We've been graced. Let me close my message now. The gospel. You know, if I end this message now, you'll have had a very strong message. You've had a lot of passion for me. And you're like, man, okay, okay, I need to be motivated here. And, and you'll have a lot of guilt. <laughs> but you know that only goes so far. It only goes so far. At the end of the day, you need a motivation that's more than guilt. It's more than condemnation. It's more than feeling bad about yourself. You need a motivation. You need to look into the city. And where does this city come from? You need to hear the gospel, the good news. You know, um, I'll close this way. Um, my wife and I, we named our youngest child after a woman named Beth Kidd. If you're in our church, I've, I've told you something about Beth Kidd. My, my daughter Elizabeth is uh, d- named after a woman named Beth Kidd, and she has a profound love for the poor. And she lives in inner city Boston. I mean, she doesn't live apart from the poor. She lives right in the middle of the worst neighborhoods in Boston. And she's lived there for a long time. And she does a ministry called Place of Promise. And she works with what she calls multiply injured persons. That's what she means. And what she means by a multiply injured person is something like this. Is, well, you were born out of wetlock... You probably had drug addiction. You might have AIDS. And you were probably abused. And you came out of prison. These are the people she works with. How does she get in contact with them? Usually someone calls her out of prison and they, she is their ticket to get out of prison and get on parole. If she get, if they, if, if, if Beth okays this person to come and live at Place of Promise and get loved and ministered to by her and the people that she works with. So the people call her, contact her, she interviews them, and she prays over, and she thinks, I think this is a person the Lord wants me to love. And she takes these people into Place of Promise, lives with them, walks with them, and finds out what is their deep problem. How do they 
hate God. I mean, and they lie to her. Oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. Da, da, da. And then they run off and do their drugs. They end up back in prison. And then they call her again. Oh, Beth, Beth, you know, I'll follow Jesus again this time. They lie to her. And then she takes them back in. She loves on them. And you know what she does? You know what she mainly does? She basically does two things. If you listen to her, you know, and Grace and I, we, we spent time with her. Grace actually spent the whole summer with, with Beth when she was in college at, at Place of Promise. She basically does two things. One, she loves them. She doesn't disrespect them. She does not look down on them. She just says, you're just a person like me. And you know what? You're poor and broken at loss, just like me. And you are sinful and blind and selfish, and you've made bad decisions and you wrecked your life. And that's exactly some of the things that I've done and would have done had not Jesus come into my life. So number one, she just loves them. Without pride, without contempt, sometimes it's a tough love, (laughs) right? But she just loves them and walks with them and trains them. And the second thing she does is she just pours the gospel into them. She's always saying, I know I told you it's about Jesus. And you know what she's always showing them? The Jesus, and this is what it says in the scriptures. Jesus was the one who was rich and he made himself poor so that those who are poor can become rich. She is always pointing them to have a relationship with that person the Jesus who was rich and made himself poor so these who are poor can make themselves rich. She just pours the gospel into them. And you know what? You know what happens at Place of Promise? They change. People change in drastic, extraordinary ways. Beth has looked at me and said to me about a woman that once had tracks of arms going up with her because she was a heroin addict and she had AIDS, that she became such a beautiful person of God. That's what she said. That when Beth could just remember her friend that she once met and who was on her deathbed with tracks of arms, of heroin, heroin addiction up her arms, and then when Beth started to take this person in and the person she became, Beth started to weep because how much she loved this person and how great of a godly woman this person became. These people change because that is what Jesus does. And if you come to God, you come to our church and you hear the gospel, you know what you have to see? You have to see that you're, that's you. That when you meet the person, a bishop, or you meet the heroin addict, or when you see that person in the corner, apart from Jesus, Apart from the fact that God gave you a nicer life, that could just be you. And how many times in your own life, if God wasn't there for you, would you have wrecked your life? Would you have screwed up your life? Maybe you're screwing up your life now. But that it is not if it wasn't for Jesus who made himself poor so that you could be rich. This is it. This is the only motivation that can really change the way we look at this. And to look at the city. For this Jesus who came into our life, he builds this city. 
by his cross. He doesn't just build the city because he's almighty. I'm strong. I'm almighty God, and I'm just going to fix everything with the snap of my fingers. You know how he does it? Because every single citizen of the city of God, they celebrate that Jesus made himself poor on the cross, and so everybody pours out their riches because they are enamored with what Jesus has done for them. Jesus did not build this great city with almightiness. He built it with his weakness and with his poverty. And how will a people live in this world and show that there's a shining new city to come and poverty can actually be conquered? How will we show that? We don't show that by being smarter or being superior and all these other kinds of ways. We show it by celebrating Jesus who made himself poor so that we who are poor can be rich. We keep that deep in our minds and only the cross will conquer the poverty in our society when the cross is big in our hearts. Let's pray and um, well, let's respond to this message and then um, after we have a response song, I'm going to invite David to uh, give his, his, his presentation. Let's pray. Lord our God, forgive us. Have mercy on us. A greedy, selfish people living too much like rats in a cage and not like glorious sons and daughters of the Most High God. We thank you for Jesus, a great and rich king, glorious who lowered himself into the deepest spiritual ghetto there is, right into the middle of Babylon, so that Babylon could crucify him, so that with the cross he may make awful ratty Babylonians rich and transform us, fit for his city by his blood. Lord, humble us, change us, so many of us, we have such a shallow view of sin. We have, such, we have such a weak view of poverty. And we have such a weak view of your grace. Help us to swallow this gospel deep and whole. And, and be change agents. I don't know, most of us will probably never be tremendous giants like Beth Kidd. But may we just learn how to walk to you like she has seen. She has seen you. She has walked with you. She has seen your glory. And she is strange. <laughs> Make us strange, Lord. Make us strange in bishop. Make us strange with each other. Make us strange in American Babylon, in the San Jose, which is American Babylon. In Jesus' name.